Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. excited to be talking to Katie Suresh, who is the National Lead for Urban and Labour at ActionAid Association India. Thank you so much for joining me today, Katie. Thank you, Vicky. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you as usual. <laughs> um, great. So could you start, please, by introducing ActionAid India and your organisational experience of urban programming? Yeah, thank you. ActionAid Association India is an organisation that works for social transformation and social justice issues in India for the last 40 years. It's part of an international federation of the ActionAid community, but in India it has its own um, distinct line of work which encompasses both the rural and the urban. It's, it's, it's kind of been in action for decades, so it's kind of looked at India's own development through its, its own eyes and lenses over a reasonable period of time. The Urban Lens is a very strong initiative which uh, emerged in India in the late 90s. And ever since that, we've contributed to the discussion around the urban issues in the ActionAid fraternity internationally. And I think that uh, there have been other, other countries which have done very good work. The work in South Africa, the work in Brazil come to my mind. Uh, there's some interesting work that's going on in Bangladesh and in in other other and Vietnam and places like that. And the interesting thing about the work around urban is that at one level there is a certain similarity, but at at another level it's so unique and particular to the ways in which the countries have developed their own developmental strategies. And in in a certain sense uh, the urbanization filter or the urbanization lens in many ways uh, amplifies the developmental strategies that countries have taken for themselves. And it it both amplifies and it, uh, in many cases, like in this present context of COVID, it completely exposes the developmental paradigm as well. ActionAid Association India, represented by our executive director, Sandeep Chachra, is the co-chair of the World Urban Campaign in this period. We have been uh, in that position for almost two terms now. And the idea has been for us to also amplify from the experiences that we have from our own constituency and our our own territories into the urban uh, discourse globally. The World Urban Campaign is a campaign within the UN Habitat Forum. And the World Urban Campaign, in a certain sense, uh, brings together non-state actors along with state actors, uh, but mostly non-state actors onto a platform so that they can influence the larger trajectory of the narratives on urbanization across the world. 
it is a established part of the UN systems, UN habitat system, to also take into account the views that is emerging from the World Urban Campaign. A lot of urbanization discourses at the UN Habitat, of course, are led by academic as well as corporate entities. A lot of it is technology focused. A lot of it is focused on highly capital intensive understanding of urbanization. And what we attempt to do is to is to try and balance that out by bringing the human impact uh, elements back into the narrative. And for us, that's a very, very important part of the urbanization story. That does need to come back in. Otherwise, the narrative around urbanizations becomes technocratic. Could you tell us more about the urbanization context in India in which we need to place your work, which is at the intersection of urban and labor? The urban in the context of India is huge. I mean, we have at this point in time, uh, if we look at the 2011 census, we probably are looking at about 30% of our populations being urban. But between 2011 and 2020, if you look at the stats, we uh, are certainly looking at a much more accelerated sense of urbanization that's going on. We have about 5,000 cities in this country. We have quite a few cities which are a million plus, and the million plus cities uh, dominate the landscape of the urban in the country. In many ways, the growth of these cities have been linked to a huge amount of distress that's felt in the agrarian sector. So you have a movement of people between the rural and the urban, which are of multiple types. There are people who have moved long-term from the rural to the urban. There are people who have moved a little bit more short-term. I mean, so for instance, people who have domiciled themselves in, in cities now over the last 10, 12 years. But increasingly, you have people who have moved into cities essentially because that is now turning out to be the ways by which they're dealing with their, the precarity of livelihoods that they experience in the rural sector. So a lot of the urban aggregation of people is, is a consequence of a huge amount of precarity. And it's that continuum that needs to be understood in the context of India. And I'm sure that that is not, it's not an uncommon narrative with developing societies. It's a narrative that needs to be understood as part of a larger continuum, rather than just looking at the urban in isolation or in almost as if the urban is an enclave. The urban is not an enclave. The urban is porous. And its porosity is uh, very uh, clearly understood by the nature of migration that we see in in our country. Urbanization by itself, of course, it's a phenomena, but it's also something that is pointing out to inequities that exist and is pointing out to what needs to get addressed in a more systemic sort of way rather than in um, sort of episodic ways. And that's one of the sort of very important parts that I think is necessary for us to understand in the context of a large country like India. So, I mean, for instance, many of our cities are driven by internal migrants. I mean, people who are moving from one province to another province, from one part of province to another part of the same province in search of livelihoods. So as per the census of 2011, the rate of growth of internal migrants was as high as 44.9%. That's between 2001 and 2011. The growth exceeding even the population rate of 
18% during the same period. The total number of internal migrants stood at staggering 455.7 million in 2011. Just look at the size of populations we're talking about. This is almost like continental populations we're talking about. Yeah. And the primary reason for high internal migration in India has been regional disparities, lack of job opportunities or underemployment in the source centers, as well as chronic poverty, weak education systems, skills mismatch, etc., etc. So when we look at the urbanization problem, I talked about the porosity a little earlier. The porosity also means that all of these things begin to afflict the urban very, very quickly because it doesn't go away. It just gets displaced from one arena to another. So these are shifting from one part of the canvas to another part of the canvas. They're not dealing with the primary issues there. So for us, the urbanization process is also that of continual movement even within the city. It is not movement to the city alone, but within the city, how the city constantly displaces because it's giving unto spaces and unto, unto people's habitats different values, market values, so to speak. And that market value, in a certain sense, dictating the uh, planning process and dictating, therefore, the infrastructure that would come into play in each of those times. So the marginal is not as if it's, it's a static thing. It's quite dynamic. And in the city, the dynamism is something that you can, you can see if you take a particular household, you can, see the, you can see the shifting nature of their household in one lifetime. Whereas if you were to look at the same thing in the rural, you might have to look at two or three generations to see the nature of shift that's taking place. Whereas here, in a matter of 30 years, you would have seen them shift three times because the city has uh, claimed the spaces that they uh, live in. But that was the context pre-COVID-19, and now the situation's become even more dynamic. The last eight months, in, in many ways, very sharply focused on all that went wrong in our urbanization narrative. The Center for Monitoring the Indian Economy suggested that the urban unemployment rate rose from about 9.41% to 24.95% between March and April of 2020. And that's all lockdown in, induced. That's all induced by social distancing. So when you have a lockdown and social distancing in an already existing inequitous situation, you see an immediate impact of a proportion that, that is calamitous almost. From a 9.41% to a 24.95%, you can imagine what that would mean in terms of, you know, look at the four, 455 million that I talked about and look at these numbers in, in juxtaposed against that, these percentages juxtaposed against that. The sectors that were affected during the lockdown were construction, manufacturing, trade, hotels, restaurants, which collectively account for about 55.2% of the total urban employment. So of the 55% of the, of the urban employment, you had a 25% just completely knocked out. These figures hide the, the, the human impact. I mean, these figures in, in many ways sanitize what is really happening to individuals in the cities because they had come here for livelihoods. And what has happened during the lockdown and consequences of the lockdown has been that it's, it's completely wiped out any forms of social capital or you know, any forms of livelihood that they had. I mean, and we've had a new phenomena, which was reverse migration phenomena that 
took cities by surprise. I mean, cities haven't recovered from the migration, reverse migration that has taken place in this last few days. So when we started working, actually it started working in 2000. I don't think in our wildest imagination, we thought that we would be looking at this proportion of reverse migration. We understood it as a unidirectional event, but it's by directionality in many ways point out to the nature of how cities have treated its poor. The immediate abandonment by the poor of their habitat in the, in the cities show their complete lack of trust and their sense of insecurity about the space that they inhabited for whether it was a transient six months or a more domiciliary 10, 10 years or whatever. I mean, their abandonment of the habitat is in many ways one of the most important things that I think uh, that urbanization and urban theorists need to reckon with uh, as we get into, you know, really looking at what are cities meant for. Also, ActionAid itself trying to understand this shift that took place, you know, over the 20 years that we've been working on urbanization, you know, from, from the point of view of first looking at it from the rural-urban continuum to now looking at urban to rural continuum because people have found that the safest spaces for them is to go back to their homes in the villages, although nothing has particularly changed for them and their lives in the rural areas. So, but they still find the rural a little bit more secure than the urban which, in which they participated in the last 20 years, but got very little gains out of it. But I think that's really insightful, the new lessons that you're learning and the way you're having to reconceptualize over the past few months. But I think it's also just highlights how critical the work that you're doing around making sure that the human elements are recognized. I mean, as you, when you look in India around urbanization and you extrapolate it, everything is about millions of people. It's about millions of individual livelihoods, stories, um, and human impact stories. And it's really important to, to make sure that there are channels for those to be told and recognized within formal processes. So within this context, please could you talk more about ActionAid's work with marginalised people working in the informal sector and how you take an integrated systems approach to this? We work with a whole bunch of people who are in what we call the informal sector. Not that the formal sector is highly secured and have all the social securities that maybe uh, European cities or European countries have. The formal sector seems to have, by at least legal provisions, some set of rules by which they are governed. Whether they are governed by it or not is a different story altogether. But the more important thing is where the law has absolutely no footprint. And you would be aghast to know that the informal sector in our country is about 94% of the workforce. So when we're talking about the secured workforce, we're talking about a 6% or 7% at the most, which is the secured workforce. 94% of the workforce in our country, by different uh, estimates, I mean, one can, the estimates can range between 80 to 90%. So let's not quibble over the, over the numbers, but whatever it is, it is a huge number. I mean, it's as, as big as probably the population of Europe or more than that or whatever. So we're talking about an entire continental population, which is in informal sector. The informal sector is called informal because there is no rules governing the sector. There are no ways by which this sector has um, 
any sense of guidance or any sense of, uh, you know, obligations of those who employ people in, in these sectors. They are truly in the capitalist market. Their labor is bought and sold on a daily basis, basis the vagaries of markets, you know. I mean, so there is absolutely nothing which mediates that, that space, that content of labor. ActionAid's own work has been largely to try and intervene in that gray zone of people who are in, in urban employments. So starting with, say, domestic workers, to workers who are street vendors, uh, people who are, you know, selling handicrafts, who are uh, fishmongers to whatever. So there's the work that we have been doing is at multiple levels. One is, which is a fundamental work, is collectivization. We've been working with workers of about 16 to 17 different trades, whether they're inland fisher folk, whether they are fisher folk who are based on coastal areas, whether they are fishmongers, whether they are, you know, working as street vendors. So a lot of these things have also meant that we've had to create collectives. So we have a 900 plus collectives that past five years of work from 2015 to 2019, which is a sort of a concentrated piece of work that we did. In that period, around 900 such collectives were created, which had about 40,000 odd people who were members of it. A 40,000 number compared to a 455 million is not a large number. But it's a number, as, as we in ActionAid say, that you know the idea is not for us to transform the entire society, but the idea is for us to get a certain sense of criticality in terms of also the experimentation. When you, so therefore, for us, uh, working with collectives did mean that you know, we needed to have a certain kind of footprint across. So we worked in 32 different cities. We worked in about 18 uh, provinces of the country. Um, and we worked over five years with about 17 to 18 um, trades, different kinds of trades. And all of this is what we call the marginal in the city. So these are the marginals in the city and we were working with them. So the nature of domestic work in say the city of Mumbai would be very different from the nature of domestic workers and the relationship between the employer and the employee in a city which is much more closer to a sort of a rural area. So when we worked in 32 different cities, we did not get into a one shoe fits all approach. We started recognizing that each city and its proximity or lack of it from the rural or the feudal made huge differences in the ways in which that particular marginal was being treated inside an urban context. And that for us is the important part of the learning process because that is very, very key to any intervention that we come up with and especially uh, to look at, for instance, policy prescriptions. Because the second part of our work was really to look at, therefore, what do we need to say or do about policy? How do we influence policy from the individual narratives? Because the individual narratives teach us things and the collectivization process leads us to a capacity to bargain and to negotiate. But to bargain and negotiate, you need rules of the game. And the rules of the game have to be established. And so therefore, the intervention at the level of the systemic becomes more and more important for us as well. The question for us always is that, does the urban actually transform the 
approach. It in many ways actually does not transform the approach, but it aggrandizes the inequities and leverages that in a sort of vicious way. So for instance, uh, some of the work that we've been doing is to see whether there is a caste construct in the kind of occupations that people take on when they come to the urban. And there is a caste construct playing itself out. For instance, those who are sanitary workers in municipal spaces come from a particular caste community. And they come from the same caste community which are treated very, very badly in the rural context because they are from the Dalit community and they are considered to be what is called untouchables. A law has been passed saying that you will not manual scavenging, as it is called uh, in India, which is the cleaning of waste, human waste from within the sanitary processes of the city, has been done by human beings for for many years, and it continues to be done. And there's been that's been another area of the marginal and this and the city dweller that we've been working with. So a lot of what we what we work on is really to look at this seeming charade of modernity that cities in India pretend to have, whereas it is still um, largely built on the labor and the amplification of the injustices of the feudal on in the urban context. Two parts of our work has been to visibilize this invisible narrative, the narrative of the continuation of the caste inequities in cities, but give them uniforms and then they become modern. But the nature of work doesn't change and the nature of relationship doesn't change at all. So our work has been to break through that and the collectives are one form of trying to uh, build the capacity to negotiate. The second is for us to look at ways in which in different cities and in different uh, occupational groups, we are able to create uh, what is called the, the narrative of change and then to build a systemic uh, sort of a process, which has led to, for instance, having the ability to even out of this COVID process, be able to give the National Human Rights Commission very, very distinct uh, recommendations, which have been uh, now reissued as advisories of the National Human Rights Commission to the provincial governments. So that's the chain of things that we do, starting with that individual with whom we are working in a collective, to being able to, uh, to bring this uh, narrative at the level of the, the larger canvas back into, into officialdom and the officialdom therefore having some kind of ability to create policy prescriptions which can give guidance if the, if the intent is to, is to make change by those in authority. I'm not romantic about this in the sense that just because they have the ability to prescribe things change on the ground, but the ability to prescribe in many ways takes away the cloak of invisibility on the marginals. And that's a very important part of the work that we're also trying to do. Please, could you talk about the key stakeholders that you've worked with and the new models which you've innovated to bring these different urban stakeholders and community activists together, please? Our idea of systemic uh, shifts has been to look at as many stakeholders in this uh, urbanization drama and to try and influence their thinking around it. So for us, it's a fairly large theater. So our work is also with that group of people who consider themselves the arbiters of cities' destinies. We work also with institutions 
when I talk about these arbiters, uh, I'm talking about institutions, town planning authorities, city level governments, municipal officers of different kind, and of course, architecture schools. They've been trained in forms of architecture, which almost prevent them unless they they really sort of bring themselves down to the level of individual experiences. A lot of architects we find are completely blind to the idea that there are people who, who suffer because of their blindness in terms of planning processes. So a lot of the work that we do is also with planners, student planners and with faculties of, uh, of architecture institutes and things like that. We realized, you know, in the late 2000s is that knowledge about the systems and the practices that you're trying to intervene into is as important as the intervention itself. So systemically, inside ActionAid itself, we started to create knowledge hubs. And the knowledge hub's role is different from that of the practice managers who are into the intervention business in the sense that the knowledge hub has the ability to to work a bit tangentially to the approach of the organization whereas the practice managers would probably be uh, very much tuned to the approach of the uh, existing organizational organization and its practices so the knowledge hub in many ways had the ability to break out of and to break into spaces which would traditionally not be spaces where action aid would like to see itself in so for instance to work with students and students of planning and architecture would not be the natural uh, sort of a stable to which action aiders would rush to they would see them them as that bunch of elite that we don't need to talk to or whatever but the knowledge hub was created so that we do have the ability to talk to and we have the motivation as well to talk to to these these parts of the larger system and in many ways the urbanization knowledge hub has been one of the most success, successful knowledge hubs of uh, action aid association india and it has gone to the extent where it has created formal mous with universities it has created formal universities with practice agents across uh, across the space of organization and labor and this was possible only because of the fact that uh, it is necessary to look at the intersections now. That's the only way that you can get breakthroughs. The existing knowledge within systems, and we must understand that NGOs are systems themselves. They have their own sort of gravitational forces working on themselves. And for us to break out of it, one has to create structures which have the ability to undock itself from the mothership and dock itself onto another one and then have the ability to move back and forth uh, between these systems. We are about five or six knowledge hubs, but the urban and the labor more or less actually took off because it systemically recognized the needs to release itself from the gravitational pulls of the mothership without you know, cutting the umbilical cord. It's very much part of the systemic story. Um, because if, if one were not to do these experiments in structures, it is impossible for us to, you know, look at new ways and new avenues. And this is very important to do that also because 
this, the, the change that is taking place in the urban and the labor sector is of such tremendous speed that you know, what was relevant pre-COVID is almost irrelevant now. The ability and the agility that our systems have is very, very essential for us to have. That's how we will remain relevant. Otherwise, we are looking at almost irrelevance because we've just stuck on to or felt that there was only these ways that we could intervene. You know, there has to be more than the comforting ways of intervention. But we also try to theorize around this because it is very important to theorize as much as it is important to intervene. Because in many ways, theorizing about it helps us to understand the nature of the moving parts. Uh, and the city is a billion moving parts uh, all at the same time. And therefore, for us to recognize what that means and in what direction and what is the trends and trajectories that cities are taking, are they leading these trajectories or are they succumbing to tra trajectories which are imputed onto them is also an important part of the theorization that we need to work on. Uh, so the work that we did around that was work called the Urban Action Schools. The Urban Action Schools were uh, spaces that where we brought the policymaker, we brought in uh, urban theorists, academics, and most importantly, uh, activists whom we work with into the same rooms. We have these processes of you know, 21 days of a pressure cooker situation where we are sitting and, you know, discussing multiple elements of urban practice and urban theory in a room which is a room of people, room full of people who are not usually people who sit together. What we have been doing has been to say that, no, but we've got to sit together and try and see how this works out. And let's try and see if something new emerges in terms of thinking. And so a large part of our theorization work happens in the urban action schools. The urban action schools have, have a channel on YouTube with over 100 episodes of people who were key discussants and people who, who challenged us on the, on the larger narratives. And so you're most welcome to go to the urban action school YouTube channel to see the various uh, discussions that took place. But those discussions have been very, very important in, in all of us in Action Aid and for our work on policy to be uh, uh, based on. And therefore, a lot of the work that we do is also recognizing the precarity as a conceptual model and not only as an intervention element. And that's very important because if there are structural precarities that are being built in and imputed, that needs to be dealt with very differently from an episodic precarity. Precarity that comes because of, of something that happens in the external environment as compared to something which has been built systematically and, and more or less deliberately into the, into the urbanization narrative. And that's the part which also this over the five, six years we've been able to build it has led to a point where we have uh, inside the Institute for Public Enterprises, which is based in Hyderabad, a center for excellence on urban management, where this is beginning to be a little bit more formalized than the ways in which we were working. 
I'm not very sure whether that's the best way to go about it, but that's a form of going about it. We believe that we should experiment with that as well. So there are things that we are trying to do, which is to bring the informal sector, looking at the informality as disciplinary areas of research and work so that it's not something that is driven by NGO good intentions, but it's also driven by pretty solid understanding of what's happening and to push back on economic models on the basis of that form of theorization. And we'll link to the Urban Action School's YouTube channel in our show notes so that people can experience more about your collaborative experiments in theorizing. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. So continuing now with the innovation dimensions, please could you say more about some of the system disruptions and innovations which you introduced and how they've contributed towards more inclusive outcomes, particularly during the COVID-19 period? A lot of the work around collectivization you know, like I said, there were about eight to 900 collectives that we created during this period. But these collectives also created another forum, which is called the Working People's Charter, which was a platform of the informals with more formal trade unions. Because the more formal trade unions began to recognize that there is a merit in them coming into the informal spaces because a lot of the trade union work is inside clearly demarcated work areas. You know, they work in factories, they work in industrial complexes, or they work in industrial zones and things like that, because the membership issues and the, all the other kinds of issues that, uh, that needs to be dealt with uh, are better dealt with when you have a sort of a geography that you can control. With the informal, that's just not there. They're there everywhere but they're nowhere in any, one, any large numbers in any single place. And that's the nature of the informal and that's the nature of that. That's also part of the reasons why collectivization has been difficult. So a lot of the work of ActionAid India has also been to try and uh, help uh, many of these collectives to mature, to, to recognize that the forms of negotiations or you know wage negotiations for instance which is a very very important part of their work or you know negotiations around work and nature of work and the entitlements related to work are done through not by the NGO action aid at all it's done by you know formal unions of the workers themselves and the working people's charter which is a aggregation of about 250 different uh, smaller unions have been a very, very important part of the work that we've done. Uh, the Working People's Charter has been extremely effective and has been very, very uh, useful during the COVID period. It was also the period in the last few months, to be more precise, in August of 2020, that the parliament decided to amend 44 labor laws into four codes effectively more or less wiping out the jurisprudence around labor issues for the last 75 years and uh, to change the narrative and i will exemplify the change of narrative by just looking at one aspect of what the change was for you to get a sense of what it meant uh, the labor codes more or less said that you know the 
the time that a worker needs to work could be a minimum of eight hours and a maximum of 12 hours with a break of one hour in between throughout that period. And that's a complete and gross violation of the ILO codes. So we have, we, ha we have a system, or we have a process in place since August where the labor codes have now completely dismantled, even for the, uh, even for the formals, the, the kind of mechanisms that existed for them. So labor is under attack. The marginals are under attack in the cities. The cities and the, and the labor forces in our country have not experienced this in the last so many years. And what they are experiencing is unique in that sense. I mean, unique in, not in a nice way, uh, unique in the sense that it's, it's never happened before. Uh, so all of us uh, are experiencing a change of a seismic kind to the rules of the game. And therefore, for us to recover from that and to and to get our senses about what needs to get done is going to be is going to sit, take some time. It's not going to be based on immediate uh, kind of uh, responses. Action Aid, in many ways, sort of pushed the government to have, for instance, this thing called the workers' facilitation centers. This was one more experiment that we did during the course of this five years of work that we did around uh, the work with the informals. And in many ways, the workers' facilitation centers became whatever forms of those workers' facilitation centers. Even after the main project was over, they became the fulcrum around which our relief and rehabilitation system responded to. So when somebody was returning from Bangalore to Bihar, they were touching at least three or four points in the map of India where we had the workers' facilitation centers, which sort of outreach to the reverse migrants. So the sort of structural things that we were able to innovate and bring to both our work and the work of the government or other NGOs as well. So they saw people started seeing these innovations as things which are important and imperative. So the workers' facilitation centers were was one basic infrastructure which helped us to mount our relief work and our relief work reached out to over 2.5 million people across the country. This innovation that we did during that earlier period was the basis of a fairly grounded, granular ability to respond to the COVID-induced reverse migration. And so sometimes we, when you look at the the innovations that you do within a certain period of time, you are not able to assess its impact till you are able to see it, not in the context of it being created, but in the context of it being applied and used. It was unfortunate that it had to come into play at the time when we went through one of the severest human tragedy, tragedies that uh, the country has faced in near times in terms of the reverse migration. But it also showed the natural resilience and the structural robustness of that innovation as well. Section 8 Association India has been one of the few civil society organizations which have been able to do uh, surveys of people while we've been going through a tumultuous transition. We've been doing the national survey of uh, migrant workers, I mean, workers in the informal sector. So that's been a parallel process because that we thought that we should build up evidence of what's happening and drive it back into policy spaces and things like that.
in round one in May of uh, 2020, during lockdown 3.0, we did a week of surveys across the country and reached out to about 390 odd districts of the country and spoke with 11,500 plus migrants, which gave us a canvas and gave us information off a canvas which was unprecedented even for ActionAid. We have completed now in uh, October, in the last few days, round two of that survey. And this time we have touched about 17,000 workers. Out of the 17,000 workers that we have been able to speak to and understand where they are in terms of a whole bunch of questions, about five to five and a half thousand people were people whom we met in the first round, which meant that we were able to look at that individual as she or he is going through this experience. And for us in ActionAid, these are the kind of innovations that we are looking at. Because this gives us, you know, we talk about evidence-based policy narratives. The planning systems in the government of India, the Supreme Court, and the National Human Rights Commission referred to parts of the study which, which have been very, very important for them to create a narrative of responses that formal systems have to do. There have been not too many other civil society organizations who've had the ability to reach out to this large numbers of people. I mean, many of them have done micro studies. Uh, a lot of micro studies have been done, but these macro studies leading to these studies being quoted, cited for systems or for intervention changes are the kind of innovations that we are trying to also work with. I think that the new currency of innovation is going to be leadership in terms of thought. What are we going to do with, with knowledge and information and how we work with knowledge and information is going to be far more important. Along with the fact that, of course, we are a large national organization. We have about 22 offices in the country. So therefore, you know, we have a footprint. We have, for the lack of a better way of putting it, slippers on the ground. We certainly don't have boots on it. But we have tons of slippers on the ground, which uh, helps us to do what we are able to do. So yeah, I think these innovations come from a recognition of your own strengths, your own uh, outreach, your ability to understand the canvas in which you operate yourself, and to overlay that with practices and interventions that are useful in that context, and then to amplify it to levels where different people play different roles. As you can imagine, the data sets that we have access to when we have 11,500 plus 17,000 workers is priceless, not just for the moment, but it's going to be priceless in the next 10 years because that kind of capturing of the narrative during this time, during this particular moment, uh, would be impossible to recreate. So for us to do these things in the moment and in the time when it was absolutely difficult to do it, was also you know, very, very important for us to do, to prove to ourselves that the 40 years of work that we have done has incrementally led us to the point where we are able to do these kinds of things. It's not yesterday's work. It's, uh, it's really the work that intergenerationally the organization has invested into itself, which has allowed for knowledge products of this kind, which is also emerging out of ActionAid India. So looking back now at the scale at which you've been working, please could you share your thoughts on what enabled you to do this and some of the internal organisational aspects or changes which were important? 
If you look at the 32 cities, it ranged from 10 million plus cities to cities which were in their 500,000 people in that range. Indian cities largely don't have smaller numbers than that. I mean, 500,000 is like a tiny city. So we did work in the 32 cities during the five-year period, the concentrated five-year period that we worked in. We did work across that range because it was tier one, tier two. Uh, it was also large metropolitan cities that we worked in. So we had the range because by design, we wanted to have that range uh, and not just work in, uh, in one kind of city because in our original thinking, we were clear that what was applicable in a metropolitan city will not necessarily be applicable to a smaller city, which is almost even a satellite of that large metropolitan city. So we would have to bring in the ability to have a nuanced view. Since what was uh, central to the ways in which we were thinking was the uh, sense of inquiry. So we did approach it also that way of having these different tiers of uh, cities. I do, do remember some conversations about how we have this ability to make life difficult for ourselves by some of my colleagues and they were not quite wrong but uh, but i think they just got the spirit wrong because <laughs> i think that the idea really was to challenge ourselves and not to make it easy for ourselves to to implement our theory you know i mean uh, the idea was not to do fabulous implementation but the idea was to do fabulous implementation with innovation the ability to have people truly own the innovations and the implementation that could have happened only when, by design, we were willing to listen to people. So from design to implementation, there's sometimes a huge amounts of transmission losses. For us, to keep the transmission losses as low as possible was an important challenge to work with. A lot of us do design uh, large interventions or large processes within our organization and, and try to implement it across. So there are two elements which I think saved us. One is, of course, the, the fact that the design was reasonably robust. The design was also equally flexible. It recognized that it needs to operate on the ground in different territories differently. It cannot be that, you know, because there's a grand theory and a grand narrative built into the design, that it has to be implemented exactly the same way across. So we built into the grand broad narrative that we held onto in terms of design, we built into it the flexibility for our colleagues and the systems in which they were intervening to find particularities which made it therefore their intervention rather than a grand intervention. So while it, it had all the trappings of a grand intervention, the way it was experienced in the multiple spaces where this intervention was happening was that it was their intervention because they brought into, infused into it particularities. And I, I always think of this as uh, in terms of preparation of food. You can always bake a cake, but when you go to different parts of the world, the way that baking takes place and what you infuse into the baking changes the nature of the cake from it being one sort to, to a completely different sort. But I think that that's one of the huge learnings that we got. You know, how do we keep it to be a narrative that appeals to somebody in Vishakapatna and not in the country office in Delhi. The country office in Delhi, 
equally is a stakeholder, but is not the primary mover of this whole process. The implementation part throws up a lot of details and a lot of feedback. The question is, does, your, does the design allow for the feedback loops to come back in and to influence the larger narrative? It is sometimes the inflexibility of the larger narrative that, that you build in as a closed system that uh, then prevents things from being innovative. And I think that in many ways, what we did was, I don't know whether that was by design, but certainly when we started implementing, we recognized that there is a need for us to have those feedback loops really working for the system rather than the system fighting these feedback loops. These are the two elements that can happen in a very large intervention, which is that we start fighting these uh, feedback and then we start saying, oh no, that's not what we desire. And then uh, we can get into uh, nasty conversations and uh, nasty debates. But I think that the ability for us to remain open to that, the feedback loops, was built in because we designed the project in a spirit of inquiry and not designed the project with an a priori position. Because by design, we said that we should work across cities of different scales, nature, size, proximity to and proximity away from, from capital cities. So all of these things were by design. And then you had to deal with what it was throwing up from the ground and, and then say, okay, so what is it saying when it is a city which is um, you know, over a thousand kilometers away from the provincial capital? How does it change the urbanization phenomena in that context? And a lot of it actually does change because the, the further you are away from capital cities, the less influence the contract uh, technocrat lobby has over what you're doing. So your ability to do a lot more innovative work increases the further you are away from centers of power. The closer you are to the centers of power, the chances of uh, your influencing diminish unless you think out of the box. Because the spaces of elite capture is very high in cities which are closer to the power centers. So the elite has already captured many of those spaces. So your entire stakeholder mapping is very different when you are inside a capital city. You would do it slightly differently when you were too far away from the center of power. And that was a beauty. I mean, in that sense, you know, it allowed for, just because we, we did say from the very beginning, we will not work in four metropolitan cities, Calcutta, Delhi, Mumbai, and Bangalore or Chennai or whatever. We would have gotten maximum impact or we would have gotten maximum sort of visibility if we worked in these cities. But we wouldn't have gotten the impact that we got when we worked in the 32 odd cities. The collectives that we have in smaller cities have shown the resilience and the persistence way beyond that concentrated period. I mean, they have survived because they were not responsible. Their life was not hinged on project being there. The life was hinged on the fact that it was the collective as a structure was relevant to them. So sustainability was imputed by the sheer fact that you, you brought something which, which was relevant to people's lives. And because it was relevant to people's lives, the sustenance and the sustainability of the structure became something that they themselves took over rather than ActionAid having to continually support. The Workers' Facilitation Center, in many cases, it's been, it is, it is successfully... Uh, organized by workers themselves, not by external funding and 
you know, and so that's the other question that we ask in the NGO world, right? I mean, we are, keep asking what's the sustainability of these models. And my answer to a lot of people is that the sustainability is inbuilt into the fact that how relevant is it to, to those collectives for whom you claim you've created that structure. If the structure is theirs, it will sustain. If the structure was yours, it's time to say bye. I think the ability for the ground to speak to, to all of us as we are thinking through the intervention is an equally important part of any large system change. And that I think is very, very, was very essential for us to, uh, to recognize very early on in the project, saying that the surprises that come to us from working in one of the 32 cities is actually not a surprise is just filling in the information gap that we had when we started the project. And once we started approaching it that way, our interventions had the ability to modulate themselves and to calibrate themselves to the local. And that is really what you know, made it successful. In the end of the day, it is successful only when people there believe that it is their intervention and it is for them that that intervention is happening. So what's next for your work? Although I know it's a really challenging time now, not just in terms of COVID-19, but also the civic space within which you're able to work in, in India. The government in its wisdom has decided to crack down on NGOs. So as of September, we've had laws about what NGOs can do and how they can operate in the country. The world has changed for us. It changed because the pandemic, it changed because the labor laws completely sort of imploded on themselves in the parliament. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't implode, they were bamboozled or whatever. And in the last two weeks, the nature of the relationship between the state and that of the civil society in India, has three huge tectonic shifts that we've had to deal with in our specific context. Uh, at this point in time, I am not sure I can answer your question in terms of the future with a great deal of clarity. Um, but what I do know is that the spirit is willing to rise up to the challenges, whatever it means. And the point I was making earlier, which is that uh, we do try to approach a lot of these things from a spirit of inquiry, also means that we probably have the ability to... Uh, to look at what might be the ways by which we can still continue to be relevant. I think that that spirit can't be squashed just because of external realities. But how precisely we would, uh, we would respond to it, I think we are just days into the, into the thinking process. But I think that the ability to think through and to work with what might be huge changes in the environment in which we have to operate because it's not about just the structure or who we are as you know the tiny players that we are in the larger scheme of things but the the entire environment in which we have to operate has changed and that means that we have to recalibrate the ways in which we think of what we are capable of changing now in my view the space that we certainly have to influence change is the space of knowledge. And that's not a space that anyone can take away from us. And I think that is where we will build our response from to what is not very clear. 
but from where is clear. Thanks, and that's very hopeful. It's kind of like that kind of innate, we know the strengths that we have and we know that the system will need those strengths, so we will continue be, to be prepared to bring them. And finally, how can we keep in touch with your progress? Oh, we would be around, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> it's more on about social media and uh, websites and things like that, but I can find them oh, yes. in the podcast I mean, uh, description. Uh, many of us have been writing in the in uh, Indian media as well as some work has been quoted in international media. I've had one or two articles coming out in German and something came out in El, pa- El Pas, El Pais, uh, the Spanish newspaper. In Spain. Um, yeah, so so we're trying to reach out uh, and we, we'll, like I said, I think knowledge is going to be one pathway that we don't believe we can be so easily sort of prevented from doing work. And they will continue to be what we will work with. I mean, so knowledge products, we will create specific ways by which we will intervene in the long term in the uh, Indian space. I think we're still, still working on it, but we aren't going to be quiet. We're going to be as noisy and irritating to some people. Mosquitoes also do have their, have their strength. Huh? They can fell an elephant to create malaria. <laughs> Size is not always... I like, you've given us so many powerful metaphors for, for NGOs and our work and, and everything throughout this interview, which I, which I really like. And I think a lot, which a lot of other people will will smile at uh, and also recognize. We'll make sure that we include the links to some of your resources and you've got a whole range of knowledge products. So it will be hard pressed to kind of choose a few, but, um, but we will and we'll include them in the podcast description. So thanks very much. You've been very generous with your time today and huge, huge insights for others working on this in the sector. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Vicky. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.